Hello there, welcome to our weekly podcast. This is a compilation of our best interviews from the last week, all in one place. And so this week. On Monday's show, Neve shared her experience of a Facebook group designed to keep women safe while dating in New York. Derval Lawless of Aintis on the role education has played in her life. Cork designer Ali Wheeler told us how her knicker designs ended up in a Jean-Paul Gaultier ad. Oscar long-listed short film director Lachlan McKenna. And on Friday, Dr. Marion McGarry spoke about Christmas traditions and customs. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy. Now, we were talking about a private Facebook group set up to name men to be avoided on dating apps. And it's causing quite a stir. Charities Men's Alliance Northern Ireland has warned of these character assassinations. Now, somebody who was listening to the show, Neve, joins me now. And Neve has used this particular kind of site in New York. Hi, Neve. Hi, Brandon. How are you? Thanks so much. So you heard us talking about this particular private members uh, group on Facebook are we dating the same guy it's in Northern Ireland and it's causing quite a stir here so what's your opinion um so I was a little bit taken aback when I heard the way it seems to have come across in Northern Ireland because the group in New York was very very different um I mean initially when I heard about it I also thought the same thing and I was pretty outraged by it and then I was admitted to the group when I was dating there and realised that it actually was very, very strictly moderated and it was purely focused on the safety of women. So you weren't allowed to trash talk anybody. You weren't allowed to share personal opinions with anybody. You could only share anecdotes where, you know, in an objective, from an objective perspective, you were placed in danger or you were at risk. You could never comment and say that someone was weird because there's nothing wrong with being weird. That's not a bad thing. You have to be more specific. Um, And you also couldn't really comment too positively about anybody either because it wasn't supposed to be a competitive or ranking type forum. Yeah, because when I first read it, it, instinctively I thought, this sounds like a good idea, right? Because it's certainly more dangerous in general, for women who are dating and they need to be more careful. We know that. That's just a fact. And so this, and I think that helps keep you safe. Like I, I read here that you said that you would, on a date and you'd tell a barman, just you, you had little things that you would do to keep you safe, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, but also I was away from home. So I think that was part of it. And a lot of the other women in the group don't have friends there or don't know the bar they're going to or even part of the city. So, so, so I think obviously what we're hearing here is you were part, and was yours a Facebook group? Yes. So these are private groups. You have to apply to get entry and then they're regulated by the people who set them up. So they're regulated. You just have the, I suppose, the, the personality and the scruples of the people who set it up to, I suppose, to depend on its regulation. But I have a text here. I just want you to hear this, right? Hi, Brendan. I have personal experience of this. Are we dating? Same guy site. My nephew has been subject to some vile, defamatory and disgusting comments by women on the site. He's totally innocent of all the accusations that have been attempting to assassinate his character. He has suffered anxiety and depression as a result of all this and um, there's absolutely nothing he can do to prevent these people naming him and saying what they don't like about him. Can you imagine the backlash if some men set up a site like this to destroy women's reputations and characters and talk about them physically? So I think that is kind of a, a good observation. How would it go down or is there sites that men can access to talk about dating women? To be honest, I don't know. I mean, first of all, that's a horrific thing to have happened to him. Um, And it's awful because there is such a, like a one-way street almost when it comes to women trash-talking men. And if they make even half an allegation, it's very difficult for men to defend themselves. So that's 
terrible that that happened. And it's something that was really strictly moderated in the group in New York. Um, the other thing about the group is um, what concerned me even about coming on air in the first place is we're not supposed to talk about it. Nobody was supposed to know about it because in the case where you might have a forceful partner or somebody that you're dating, if they found out about it, it would remove the form and then there'd be women going on dates who cannot validate the risk. You just, you just made me think of something there, actually. Very interestingly, uh, Niamh. So if I was dating somebody and then I found out that they had vetted me on a site, I probably wouldn't be very happy about it. What would you think? Oh, I'd be absolutely livid, probably. So I thought it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's a private members group and you apply to be admitted. And so you enter as an adult and you're saying in your experience in America, it, you felt it helped keep you safe. Well, people were posting anonymously. Um, you weren't like the whole thing was supposed to be relatively anonymous, um, which obviously can be an absolute minefield. fire. Yeah, well. minefield. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah. But the idea was that you can't say that somebody was boring or dull or, you know, um, not as good looking in real life or you can't say anything like that. And that people were kicked out for saying things like that. And if somebody went on a date and they didn't enjoy it and they found the person to be irritating or anything that was, they'd be kicked out. So what information did it give you then? It was only... Honestly, it was actually a lot less exciting than it might sound. It wasn't this big gossip forum. It was very much just like blank pictures that would go up of somebody um, asking for a response. If you got no response, you could say that that person was obviously safe enough to go ahead with. If there was a response, it would be usually things like, oh, we, he said like he would get the Uber. And once we got in the Uber, he didn't want to drop me off at my apartment. He kind of told the Uber driver to keep going to his apartment. So it would only be in the case of risky things like that. Okay. Or, you know, just where safety was concerned. So um, I, I, Or if somebody was, yeah. Am I might not putting words in your mouth just to surmise. You're saying that you found it helpful when you were a young woman living in New York. Yeah. Well, I personally, fortunately, didn't come across any issues like that. But they're actually, sorry, there was one guy who I was speaking to on an app. And he came up and the women were like, oh, this guy again. And then someone asked, oh, what does that mean? And there was a story about someone who had been dating him and apparently everything that he told women was completely made up. And, you know, he used to be quite forceful and pressuring and uh, he would insist on calls late at night and then bringing them back to his apartment to to meet the family. And then somebody actually has no family. And there was just a lot of very... um, strange behaviours and uh, manipulative behaviours over time. So if you're, you're saying if moderated properly without libel, um, these, these private members' pages can be helpful? I could see the value in having something that was very strictly moderated just as a checking mechanism or just as a flagging mechanism. But I don't think there should be any room for open discussion on your opinions, thoughts, feelings about somebody. I just don't think that's valid at all and I don't think that should have happened in Northern Ireland. I hear what you're saying. I just wouldn't want to see Meta introduce a blanket ban on these groups because they do all have the same name and in some locations they are incredibly helpful. Like New York where there are so many people who move there on their own and don't have other reference points like, you know... Yeah. I hear what you're saying. No reference points for anybody. So yeah, I hear what you're saying, and I probably would tell my younger sister to have a look at them if she was dating in New York on her own. So it sounds like a a, a, a safe idea. Just sounds like this one isn't being moderated properly. So interesting.
Anyway, listen, thank you so much for that opinion. That's uh, It does open the discussion up even further and uh, wish you the best of luck and happy Christmas, Neve. Thank you. Thank you, Brendan. Happy Christmas. Text 51551. I'm joined now by the CEO of Ireland's National Adult Learning Organisation, Aintus, and she joins me now to talk about the role education has played in her life, a life that has had challenges as well as some great successes. Derva Lawless, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for coming in. Now, before we get into your story, which is amazing, uh, tell us what Aintus do. So we're a non-government organisation. We've been in place for over 50 years and our work really focuses on driving social inclusion and equality through education and then removing the barriers to adult education. Very good. Now, you breathe, eat, sleep education, yeah. right? So where are you at in terms of your adult education? Um, I would say attempting to do a PhD, but it's one of those things where um, I pay the fees, but I don't do much except read. Oh, so. <laughs> Sure, you're brilliant. Go on. So you're doing a PhD now, but what, what, what did you do? What did you study? So I started off, school wasn't really for me. Um, it just really? Felt, yeah. And now you're the CEO. I know, it's weird. Adult like, I think if I bumped into any of my school teachers, they'd probably, like, fall over with shock if they thought that I had a job like this. Well, they're probably listening now, so hi. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, so I ended up doing an adult education course, a level five in Dunleary. Um, was fantastic. Just all of a sudden I was like, maybe I'm not so stupid. And I was doing things like projects. It was much more independent um, kind of style of learning. I was learning things I wanted to learn about. It felt realistic. And then I got into DCU through that programme. It was an amazing pathway programme and I studied education and training. So go back there a bit. Maybe I'm not that stupid. Where did that come <laughs> from? Was school difficult? Um, I suppose it was a mix. I ended up having two undiagnosed learning disabilities. So I had ADHD and dyscalculia. I think that's how you pronounce that. Which a maths learning dis disability. It's dyslexia for math, right? Yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. Um, so so I think those things. So I was always in trouble in school. Like I was kicked out of maths class. I was constantly in trouble. I had a report card one year where I had to get signed in on every single class and the teacher would sign off to say what my behaviour was like. I was that bad. <laughs> Looking back, knowing what you know now... Were you disruptive because you were excluded because of your learning difficulties? I think so, yeah. And I think I've, I've read around this and it actually does happen to a lot of young people. If you have undiagnosed learning disabilities, it can come out in different ways. And your frustration is that you feel stupid or you feel like you don't know what's going on and you can react in those ways. And I think as well, for a lot of people who are probably quite independent at a young age, when you're in a school system and you have to ask permission to go to the bathroom, you have to sit still and quiet for 60 or 90 minutes and you're not like having a conversation with and explained why things should happen or why things should take place. It's very authoritative and that's really difficult. So I think that sort of stuff as well, I just found kind of it wasn't great. And then you could see in our school, now it was a great school in many ways, but yeah. they had a tiered system. So like when you start arrived in first year, there, all the students were put into different levels of classes. So from day one, there was this separation between all the students of who was in the top class, who was in the bottom class. And it just destroyed people's confidence. Like it was, I just, I really disagree with that type of kind of approach in education. So like you're talking about 12 year olds, you know, yeah. being assessed for their intellect. Yeah, it, it, it does, it, even saying it out loud now, it sounds a bit strange, doesn't it's it? It's mad, isn't it? So tell me about your school. So you're disruptive, you, you're undiagnosed and it was challenging. And so where, what was your home life like? Home life was challenging in different ways. So my mum was a single parent. Uh, we would have lived in poverty, really, to be honest. I know it's a weird thing to say, but like 
I was wearing secondhand clothes before they were fashionable. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I remember when we got a TV, we never had internet in the house. We didn't have heating. Um, like all those sort of things were just normal to me. But I guess where I grew up, they were kind of normal for most of the kids around. Um, and I remember, you know, like going into someone else's house and say if they had like like a fancy house, I just feel so awkward. Like I just Would feel, you? Yeah, really awkward. I, I still to that feel feeling. a little bit like yeah. that now. Do you? Yeah, I relate to that. Yeah, because it was an like alien. Yeah. And what, what did you, what did it make and you, you feel, feel like? like you're not meant to be there. Like as if they know, she's poor, get her out of here. <laughs> Do you know that kind of thing? And you're a good bit younger than me now, to be honest, you know, so I'm kind of, I'm really quite shocked at you telling me this from the same city. And I'd say there's still kids today where I of grew course. up pure experiencing this and all across parts of Ireland, you know. Like even I think it's funny, like little things which seem mad, like not even having kind of brand name foods in your house. Do you know what I mean? Like we didn't have bottles of Coca-Cola in the fridge or like a press with sweets in it. Because, like, my mum was just trying to get through the day and pay the bills and kind of put food on the table. And she was doing the best she could. But it wasn't easy. And, like, even silly things. Like, I remember sitting in PE one day and one of the lads started slagging me because I had four stripes on my runners. And uh, they were all laughing then because my runners were obviously from wherever. And my friend was like, they are Adidas. She just, she got the new version. And I was just sitting there mortified. Kids are cruel. <laughs> Kids are cruel. But despite these challenges which you describe, I, I mean... I. I'm fascinated now, given your role in adult learning, you know, you must see the correlation between, you know, poverty and education. You must. You must. It's huge. Yeah. Like if you look at education, even to simplify it in two separate ways, it can maintain social inequality or it can transform it and remove social inequality. And I think that's the thing that we need to be really mindful of in education. And for me, I've always been very focused on social justice and like what's fair and what's right. It was just inbuilt in me. And then when I started studying education and I kind of fell into it, to be honest, I was like, wow, look at this. Oh my God, this is a solution. And I saw not only from my own experience, but so many people around me over the years that education completely changed their life. And it's it's an amazing thing. And there's so many programs out there that are doing wonderful things. Like I, I've met so many wonderful people on this kind of journey in my job who've completely turned things around for themselves. But it's not easy. And I think that's it. the thing is we need to make sure we do remove those barriers because it should never be a financial burden to access education. It shouldn't feel like a risk. Do yeah. you know that sort of way? So you... And I acknowledge this as well, being from a working class background, a couple of left turns, a couple of wrong turns, yeah. and who knows where you would have ended up, you know. <laughs> this is it. Because there's drugs everywhere we live and there's, there's opportunities to, I suppose, mask or hide. So what was it about your life that made you go into education? What happened? What pushed you there? Do you know, it's probably my brother, really. Like, my mum was always, she had a strong value in education and we Did went she? to school. Oh, huge. To be fair to her, like, if your leg was hanging off, you were booted out the door and sent up to school. And and was that because she wanted you to learn? She wanted us to have opportunities and to have a good life. Like she really did. Do you know what? She, she pushed that home with us. And I think the advantage she had that some other parents didn't have in the area, because I would never blame another parent if people say, oh, they don't value education. Some people are intimidated by teachers. They're intimidated by schools, formal services. Whereas my mum's always very strong-minded and she kind of, she wouldn't take crap from anybody. So like when she was pushing us and there was ever any challenges like me getting in trouble in school, she would still turn up to the school every single time when I got in trouble and she didn't care and she would keep sending me back to school. And she even used reverse psychology on me. I think I was probably about 15 and she told me she was taking me out of the school and she had told me she didn't register me again for the next year. 
and like this went on all summer and she was and to the point where I was like I am going back to school you can't stop me <laughs> <laughs> right so, so there was that little piece of I suppose dynamite behind her as well to get you through it yeah yeah she, she's was that hard for her woman. do you think yeah, like it was very tough for her. Do you know what I mean? She really struggled. Like I could see it was it was very difficult. And like she had two kids. She was like struggling to pay the bills, to pay the rent. She was just trying to get by. And then she was surrounded by poverty in this situation. And she was seeing other people struggle. Um, and like that can't be easy for anybody. Do you know what I mean? It knocks her confidence as well. I'm sure like there was times where her mental health uh, would have been challenging as well. Um, but she managed to push through, thankfully, thankfully for us. And your brother is older, little older? My brother's three years older. And I would say even more so, he raised me in so many ways. He's such a strong person. Like, And every single time when I was going a little bit off the rails, it was like he dragged me by the collar and Would pulled he? me back and like, oh, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's really strong. So he's great. Had, so I, I'm, yeah, I'm hearing you had these two positive forces in your life who loved you dearly, obviously, wanted you succeed. But but do you think younger people in your situation, and just to really clear this up, do you think the odds are stacked against them? Yeah, definitely. Really? Definitely. In what way? Like generational trauma and poverty is huge. Like if you look around areas like that where you've had uh, generation after generation in the same family who haven't managed to finish school for a number of different reasons, who didn't get access or opportunities in adult education for different reasons. Um, and, you know, they might have in their wider family people suffering from addiction, poor mental health. Um, maybe they have children and they're struggling to pay the bills. There's so many different things that compound those issues. Yeah. And it just makes it really difficult. And I've just seen it over and over again. And I think even like the situation that's happening in Ireland at the moment, you know, we're seeing this gap between the rich and the poor and it's getting wider and wider. And then people are being labelled as scumbags or lazy if they're not succeeding. And it's like everything is stacked against them. It's really hard. And I even feel sorry for the younger generation because, you know, we were fed these things growing up that like if you work hard and, you know, you go to college or you get a job, you'll be able to have a home, you'll have security, you'll have like, a, you know, a certain kind of style of life. But that's just not true now. Like even if you go to college and you get a job, you still might not be able to afford your home. Like you, you need a lot of kind of financial backing from a family member if you were lucky enough to have that. And most people don't. So there's all these different things now where it's like our country has created an infrastructure that just isn't supporting people's needs. It's not protecting the very fabric of our communities. And I think the dangerous thing is, while some people are doing really well and I'm really glad for them, there's other people who are falling behind and we need to prioritise those people because at the end of the day, all you have to look back at it is at history and see what happens when you have that sort of division. Like even look at the situation in America. You have much um, lower mortality rates, like you have people's health and well-being, sickness, all of those things are impacted. And on the flip side, what's really great is with education. There's so much research that shows that if you engage in education, you have more confidence and um, you have more self-esteem. Your health is better your well-being is better, you're more likely to engage in further education, you have the kind of social connection with other people. And I think the big thing that I always find really interesting is if we meet people or, or we undertake research, we do a whole range of services, including uh, research with adult learners. If you ask them why they started to do a course, quite often they'll say it was to, to get a job. But if you ask them at the end of the programme what it is that they found most beneficial, they say it was their confidence, it was their self-esteem. And I think that for me was some of the stuff that I found kind of jarring almost when I was going into higher education because I had this whole like... I shouldn't be here. 
yeah, like I was terrified. And even like when I did the degree in DCU, DCU was probably more mixed and I was still intimidated. But like I was working five days a week while I was in college. Go back a step here now. You, you, despite all the struggles, yeah. you, you did your leaving cert. I did the leaving cert. Yeah. How was that experience? Stressful. Yeah. yeah. Like I did, I didn't do great. I did okay. Um, the, the hilarious thing is, so I managed to pass past level maths, even though I didn't understand what was going on. But I figured out, I'm very resourceful, <laughs> that you got points for writing down the um, formulas. So I wrote every single formula on every single question. So they had to give me attempt marks. <laughs> so I just scraped by. Uh, whereas with French, I had won an yeah. award in French and then I failed it. I, it was honours. Um, but I think just that morning I woke up at like 5am and I was trying to cram and I was so tired and stressed that I just totally fumbled it in the exam. And it's kind of mad, isn't it? Because like you're judging someone's whole future. Did you potentially on that? Did you have a sense at that time that you would be going to further education, or do you think you'd be you'd be out of education? Are we um, hopeful? I was kind of confused to be honest. Like I always wanted to be an actress. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> the loud, the loud me. Um, and to be fair to my mum, she was like, "No, go and do a course." And my mum always thought that I was smart, um, and I just didn't really think it. And she brought me down to Dunleary College of Further Education. And we went in and there was this course that had just started and signed me up. So it was kind of one of those things. Yeah, where I, I really didn't know like um, what I was going to do. Do you think your background is the reason you're doing the job you're doing now? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. So like I've been going to therapy for a long time on and off over the years. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff to talk through there. Some stuff obviously I won't talk about here. Uh, different challenges I had in life, but like. My therapist actually said that to me. She said, I think your motivation is completely based on all the trauma that you've had because it's what drives me. It makes me angry and it makes me want to change society and make it more inclusive place for other people. And I think everybody should have the opportunity to engage in education and not just because it's about getting a job, but it's about finding yourself and building your confidence and realising that we're all smart and we all have different strengths, but you need the opportunity to figure that out. So I, I imagine if you had the power and the, the resources, you would dismantle the education system and rebuild yes. it, right? <laughs> so obviously we're not in a position to do that just yet today because I can I can hear your frustration. But with your organisation, you are in a position to help immediately. Yeah. So you can plug gaps and fill holes and put out fires in a, in a way you can you can catch people in a way. Would that fair say? Completely. And I feel so lucky, like genuinely... It's a privilege. I'm still in shock that I have the job that I have or even that I work in Aintis. I still remember getting the job in Aintis being like, oh my God, and this is my third job in that organisation. But like the work that we do is so important and the members that we have are amazing, the work that they're doing on the ground. So like we run a range of different services. We have um, an adult learners festival, which takes place in March every year. And as part of that, there's a Star Awards ceremony and programme where uh, programmes that like look at areas like access to third level or social inclusion get awarded for the success that they've had and like you'd want to see it these learners are standing on stage crying really so oh my god it's beautiful because they're so happy that they've been part of this and they get to be kind of part of this collective community and we have what's called the learner forum in further education training and in that space we go all across the country and we hold sessions with in partnership with education and training boards and we'll run focus groups and then send out surveys. So like in the last few years, we've met over 3000 learners um, across the whole country and they've told us about their experience in education, what the challenges are and, um, you know, what's working well. And the amazing thing that we get to do is like the research team develop these regional reports with key findings 
And then we share that with the ETB and the ETBs are usually really open to trying to say, okay, what can we do to make this better? What can we do to improve this program? But it means that learners all across Ireland are actually informing the practice of their local program. And then there's a national report and that influences policy. So it's really exciting. Um, And Minister Harris has come to the last couple of launch events for those reports so he's actually engaged in what's happening um, and trying to remove the barrier so it's, you know it's nice to see that you kind of see the full circle Yeah so I just got a text here good morning Brendan I'm listening to your guest there I was born with very mild, uh, uh, very mild learning disability I had the best parents to push me and I did it myself as well I left school at 16 but went back to adult education at 39 I did courses in Tullamore and Burn. I went to college in Athlone to get my hospitality qualification in hotel bar supervision at 46 Amazing. I graduated four years ago and found out that I had dyscalculia one of the supports that finally hit the nail on the head for me I hated maths and struggled with accountancy in college and, but finally passed so wow. it's a great story but there, it is challenging isn't it yeah, and and where do people where do you tell people to get that, not give up? Yeah, know? and to know the thing is what's I mean, really that's, quite a path that's an it, amazing person who's texting there. Yeah. Fair play to them, like yeah. that's it's unbelievable. But like you shouldn't have to be the exception to survive a system, and to come through it. You shouldn't have to have your own well being compromised. Compromised, and yeah. I genuinely think that that's what happens for so many people. Your well being and your health is compromised so that you can survive a system that was designed for other people. And if you manage to come out the other side, well done. But like there's lasting damage from that. Do you know what I mean? So I think the thing is that I would say to people, if you're in a situation where you do want to engage in an education programme, please do. Like the, the staff working there are usually amazing. They're really kind. They're going to treat you with respect. It's nothing like school. Um, and step outside your comfort zone. I think I've spent most of my life just being incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but it stood to me in some ways. I yeah. even felt ill coming in here this yeah. morning. Yeah. Yeah. But like you have to do these things because that's how you grow. You have to step outside your comfort zone so that you grow. And there's these wonderful um, community education centres all across Ireland. And community education centres are like grassroots, small, um, situated adult learning uh, program. So, for example, like a men's shed or a family resource centre, community centre, and they're underpinned by values of social inclusion and equality and they're delivering programmes. Some of it is, you know, non-formal education and they might even like just start off with offering someone a cup of tea, even helping them to read their bills, figure out systems that someone just might be finding challenging, right up to doing computers, classes, sewing, language, whatever it is. And they're amazing. I've seen people go step by step because of these really? programs. Oh, wonderful. There's a woman that I have become friends with through my job. I won't share her name, but like she started off in um, Ballymun in a community education centre. She was a lone parent with four children and she had faced a huge amount of barriers in her life. She went and did this community ed program bit by bit, non-formal education first, building her confidence then she went and she did a full-time programme, then a degree. And now she's finished her degree and she's working back in the community, but she's qualifications. And now she's a leader where she grew up and she's going to be, you know, a role model influencing other people. It's amazing. It's really amazing, isn't it? Oh. So what, what, what's the uh, quick fix solution? If you, had, if you had a magic wand, what would you do? If I could give you anything to do to fix the... A magic wand? Yeah. I'd say two things probably is the first thing is to stop looking at education as if it's around training for employment. We're people, we're not employees. I think we really need to be mindful of that, that like at the moment, a lot of the policy and a lot of the narrative in Ireland is around the economy and what people can do when they're in work. But like at the end of the day, we're people first. We're a society. We have to protect the fabric of our society Um, and then look at what actually 
can be set up around that system. So like look at the person, help them to find themselves and to be their best self and then they'll find the right job for them. You can't do it the other way around. I can't help but feel very optimistic in your company. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> even though we give out a lot about education, we all, because we've all come through it and, for, and I, if you had any way lacked confidence in my school, they would... You, you suffered, right? Really? Yeah. What was your school like? It was tough. I had a tough school. It was just all boys. It was oh. religious. It was... It was uh, but but um, I think that what, in a way, you can head off childhood trauma by re-engaging with adult education. Yeah. And I think that that's, you copped that quickly, didn't you? That's exactly it, Brendan. Honestly, yeah. like, you are addressing generational trauma and childhood trauma and you're healing. There's a woman that I met as well in another community education centre and she had a horrific time in school and really difficult growing up in, you know, inner city Dublin, lots of challenges. And she said that her community education centre was a place of healing and she found herself and she's flying now and she's the most confident person. But that's it, isn't it? Like it's, it's doing that. And I think it's going back to the point you were saying as well about like, what could we do? It's making sure that if you do engage in education, that there's childcare. Oh. You know, come on, like at this day and age, that's the biggest. How can barrier. we say we have any equal society <laughs> no. when you can't have someone to mind your children to engage in education? That you have flexible classes, so like not everybody's able to do studying nine to five, Monday to Friday. Why can't it be in the evening or the weekends? Um, and that there's funding to do that and real funding. Like, come on, giving someone a grant is really important, and I'm glad we do it. There's lots of places that don't. But if you're still working five days a week on top of your grant, are you really having? a meaningful experience in education or are you still struggling? Yeah. Do you know, there are those sorts of things where I think we need to be mindful and even at the moment, like, there's programmes across the country, like all these wonderful new apprenticeships, but there's quite a divide in some of those apprenticeships. Like, I know people who've told us they're sleeping in their cars and their vans because they can't afford to rent yeah. near where they're doing their education programme or else they're driving three and four hours to get to the course. Like, that's madness. How is that equal opportunities in education? It's not. You need to create the conditions where someone can actually have an appropriate, meaningful experience in education so they can improve their circumstances. But they can't do that if you build a wall in front of them first. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You shouldn't have to climb over it. Like, um, So people listening now, if they are thinking about re-engaging with education and they don't know where to start, what can they do? There is a range of different uh, websites. There is So we actually have a service called One Step Up. Yeah. And if you log on to www.onestepup.ie, you can find really accessible information for what type of programs you can do. There's a helpline. Uh, there's kind of information around what the words mean, because a lot of this stuff is like a foreign language to people. Yeah. So, you know, so what and I'd say a key thing for a lot of people who are interested in going back to education that I've seen happen is that they'll see something in an ad on social media and they'll think, great, I can be qualified in that in only six weeks. No, quite often those programs are a private provider which I've nothing against but it's a short term one module and you're going to have to pay for that whereas the government actually does fund a lot of programs that are free or there's maybe a small payment and it'll be a longer term program and there is quite often funding supports there there might not be enough but there is supports so I'd say take the time to have a look through those things ask for help there's free guidance um, counsellors all across Ireland all you have to do is knock into your education training board and um, you can call that helpline Just Qualifax as well. personally speaking. Sorry. No, no. <laughs> you've got all the information. You're brilliant. And of course you have uh, A-O-N-T-I-S have yes. a brilliant website and all that. What would you say to a human being from your experience about thinking about re-engaging? Do it. 100%. You might feel uncomfortable and be nervous and think you're not good enough but you are. Everybody's intelligent. Everybody has different strengths and you will find yourself. You'll make new friends. You'll learn things about yourself that you never knew and you'll walk through life in the future 
looking through a different lens, honestly, and the world will feel more like you can get a hold of it. Derva Lawless, CEO of Atis, you are an inspiration. Let's take a break. Thank you <laughs> Thank so much. You. Now, my guest is a busy woman, but she's made time to talk to us this morning. She has a great take on life, which is maybe what prompted her granddaughter to gift her a present that got her writing. The same granddaughter also turned her into a viral sensation when she posted a video of her singing on TikTok and Dorothy Teske joins me this morning. Dorothy, hello. Hello. So, first of all, tell me about how you became a TikTok sensation. What happened? I recorded a song for my granddaughter, Karen, in Germany. Right. And sent it off to her. We recorded it in my, in my living room. And uh, she phoned back and she said uh, that she had put it on TikTok. Mm-hmm. And I said, what's that? <laughs> um, and she explained. Yes. And got me to download the app, which I did. And uh, I think the rest is history. I, I, I couldn't believe my eyes or ears when I saw well, what happened. It's been viewed 1.5 million times. Yes, it's gone to 1.6 now. 1. I'm, I'm boasting, haven't I? <laughs> Not at all, it's brilliant. We should take a little listen to the song. Let's have a little listen. Now, Dorothy, a TikTok sensation and airplay on Radio 1. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's blowing my mind. I love that. I love that. You're so charming. Tell me this. So, this, this granddaughter's some ticket, isn't she? She also gave you an amazing gift. And I have the book in front of me now. Oh, my goodness. You're some, you're some force. So, tell me about the gift she gave you that got you writing. Well, it was, um, she bought a subscription from a firm called Storyworth in Philadelphia. And she sent me a question every Monday for a year, which I had to answer. At the time, I thought it was just for my family and maybe in future my great-grandchildren might listen to it or look at it. And um, that took legs as well. (laughs) And I answered the question and it took me a year to write the, to write the book. So this is and actually very clever, isn't it? At the time, I, I didn't realise what I was getting into. And this was for family. And um, it, it, it kind of um, makes me very humble to think that uh, a lot of people are now reading it. What kind of questions did they ask you on a Monday? Oh, uh, like what I was like at 30, you know, that that sort of thing, what, what life was like, um, the hardships that, are, that we had to suffer growing up, especially in wartime. And um, what else? Well, I'm looking here, um, right? So one is, this, what were you like when you were 30? When you were 30, you were married for 10 years already. Well, what was the first meal you ever cooked successfully? It's very charming. But I love when it gets to the relationship advice. You're very wise. What's your big piece of advice for relationships? That that took a lot of thinking, but 
what what sticks out in my mind is with a relationship is remember the small things. Don't overlook the small things, like a touch, um, a kiss and a hug goodbye, and a kiss and a hug on meeting. People might think they're not important, but they are. They are in life. And I found that out the day that my husband went out the door, and he did get a hiss and a hug, I'm glad to say. But unfortunately, he played 18 holes of golf and didn't come back. And it always it stayed with me that the little thing like the kiss and the hug going out, was, I was glad that that happened on that day. That's lovely advice. You're also asked, how do you want to be remembered? Oh, dear. <laughs> That's a hard one now. Fun well, loving, I have the answer I here say. if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Fun loving, that, that would, I would say, a lot of things. Um, hopefully dependent that if I said I'd do a thing I would always do my best to complete the task as best as I could. Very good. You're doing great. Other life lessons. Your mother said (laughs) never accept the words I can't. Is that correct? Oh yes. Mum was a great one for that. There was no way that no matter what she asked you to do and if you said you can't she ate the head off you must have say, you know there's no such word you know you do it you do it to the best of your ability and who's to say whether it's right or it's wrong or it's not but do it well and you are a living testament of that <laughs> a TikTok <laughs> sensation and a published author yeah. and the book people can actually buy Dor- Dorothy Teske Stories of My Life it's available in Adair in the Heritage Centre and Stackpools Retail and the Coffee House in Adair people can actually buy your book Brilliant. And you're a gorgeous picture on the front. You look like royalty, Dorothy. (laughs) (laughs) You you have a great uh, giggle. You have a great giggle. (laughs) Yeah, I've been told that. You do, you do. You you have a cheeky laugh. I love it. Listen, best of luck with the book. (laughs) Best of luck and have a gorgeous Christmas. Thank you very much. And God thank bless. you for thank having you so me much. on your show. Thank you so much, Dorothy. What a charming woman. What a charming woman. Look, a couple of texts in here now. Earlier on, I mentioned about somebody who made a gingerbread house for a couple's engagement party for 6.1 million covered in diamonds. Anyway, somebody just texted saying, fair play, Brendan, for calling out the crass materialism. You're right. There's a lot more we can do with our money if we have it. When are we going to make the connection between a lot of the world's problems and rampant consumerism and materialism? I'll take that text on board. And another text are talking about the vicious turkey that a man had to give away. Hi, Brendan, it was quite common in our village growing up to have to run the gauntlet from vicious turkey cocks in in neighbours' houses. Certain houses were noted for this. Marion in Cork. Yeah, I actually was chased by a gaggle of geese when I was a kid in Curraclough. It sounds like the start of a poem, doesn't it? I remember now. She's just bringing this horror memory back to me, being chased through a caravan park. But anyway, hi, Brandon. I recognise the voice of this lovely lady from Adair. She's also well known to sing A Holy Night at Christmas <laughs> with a local choir. Lovely lady. Thanks, Ian, for getting in touch. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, she's, she's something else, Dorothy. She really is. Now, I have on the line to join me a Cork designer called Ali Wheeler. Hello, Ali. Hi. Hello. How are you? How are you? I'm, I'm not totally down with saying this sentence, but I'm going to say it because this is what they've written for me to say. Your knickers feature in Jean-Paul Gaultier's perfume ad. Yes. 
Yes. Okay. So you might yes. want to explain that to me. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm a designer maker of lingerie and lots of other things. Ah, and uh, as you know yourself, you're a designer. I am. Uh, <laughs> there's never one direction. <laughs> so last November, I got um, an email from uh, a Giorgia Toscani in Italy asking me, um, would I be able to make uh, a bunch of knickers, uh, seven pairs, uh, in a, quite a tight <laughs> time not frame. The, that, I know, I'm just going to, that's not the technical terms is it, for a group, like a bunch, is it? No, no, it's <laughs> How not. How many a do they collection. want? A collection. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's go. <laughs> Um, they, they, they wanted to order uh, seven pairs of knickers, which, given that I make everyone, it's all cut by hand and made one garment at a time. That's quite. A, it takes quite a bit of time, and they wanted them to be delivered to Paris. So, um, so you before know, you continue about that story, right? So you are a fashion designer who specialises in lingerie. Yes. But I also make sea swimming robes as well. And okay, yeah. Goodness only knows so this was a, this was a, for you as a bespoke uh, designer who makes like one pair at a time. Basically, this is a yeah. seven pairs. Is that what they ordered? So it's a big order. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Got but, you, so got you yeah. thinking, right? So what did you do? Yeah. So so I checked in with the post office, local post office, um, and they said that it would be possible for me to get them to Paris by the deadline. The deadline was really tight. Go back and, a stage, go back a stage. Did you know who they were for? Did you know they were for Jean-Paul Gaultier? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. No. So, I, so I then rang the, this woman up and I just assumed it was going to be for a wedding because normally when I've had to do multiple pairs in multiple sizes, it's been for... Wedding party. Like the bridesmaids yeah. or, you know, a hen night kind of thing. So at the end of the conversation, having gone through the order details, they've paid, etc. I I then said, oh, so when's the wedding? And Georgia said, it's actually not for a wedding. It's actually for a video shoot for Jean-Paul Gaultier. Drops phone, which I, faints. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. You know, well, you know, basically I, I was like, hyperventilating to be honest because I, I'd done fashion back in the 80s and he was on Fonterrible and we were all like super excited about him because he was so cool you know and he still is that, he still is yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah. like um, just such an edgy fashion designer and I was just so excited, you know, and and then I was like, oh, I wonder. And then obviously I had to Google everything to make sure that it was legit. That wasn't being coded because it could have been somebody having a. So uh, just so so people understand what happened, literally out of the blue, someone just or, ordered from your yeah. website seven pairs of knickers, and then you you rang them to see uh, yeah. what it was for. Was I just said, and you found out then it was for actually a video shoot. Yeah. Well. I, I rang them because rather than going backwards and forwards with emails, because sometimes when you communicate with emails, it can take a couple of days Mm. going backwards and forwards. And because the time frame was fairly tight, I just did customer service and picked up the phone and talked to her. And uh, she was lovely. How did she discover you? I think she Googled gold knickers. (laughs) (laughs) And you came up. Must be so proud. (laughs) Yeah. My knickers came up. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, and my son is um, a videographer, photographer, and he said to me, it's very unusual for a video that they want an odd number because normally 
when it's a, a big shoe, it has doubles of everything. Well, as you know, seven isn't a, doesn't divide by two very well. Mm -hmm. So he said, don't be surprised if they get in touch and ask for more. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and sure as you know it, they phoned up. Uh, well, they didn't phone up, they emailed me again. I rang them back and they wanted seven more pairs. These because are... they wanted... They wanted them for all of the models and the shoot was going to be over more than one day, you know. So, so even in the advert that's on television promoting at the moment, there are more than, there's more than just Tess McMillan, who's the beautiful redhead model, wearing my Just to give listeners context right now, and I had actually noticed the ad before I heard about you. Good. The, the John Paul Gaultier perfume ad is on at the moment, the Christmas perfume ad, you know, they, they're happening every yeah. year. And you're designs are featured on the models right now in the TV ad around the world, which is amazing. Yes, I know, I know. I'm, I'm just like, uh, so I'm so chuffed. I'm so proud, really. You now, know? I have to ask you, and this is, I've never, I, I will probably never say this ever again in my life, and I've never said it before, but what's so special about your knickers? Uh, I'm uh, a woman in her 50s who's worn a lot of knickers, and so I understand about what women want from a pair of knickers, that they want them that follow their natural body lines, that don't cut up bits and exaggerate, that they actually, the waistbands finish where your waistband on your skirt is, where your waistband on your tights, your leggings, all in the same place. So you've not got Michelin man rolls when you put your underwear on. Very good. You know, you put your knickers on, you've got a line halfway across your bum, and then you've got um, a waistband from your tights and so you end up with this big sort of like roll even when you're quite slender because of where the elastic's digging or cut into the body and so uh, that was one of my main things and then I also put a, a tummy panel in the front so there's a little bit of support for the tummy I'm waving my hands about like you can see <laughs> no, no, explaining I it, I it. <laughs> so what, um, what you, you studied fashion design as you said why did you focus on lingerie or knickers specifically well, uh, no. Uh, <laughs> Steady now, it's daytime. Uh, I don't know what you're going to tell me there, but go I, on. I know, I know. I, I'm, I'm just realising that we must be very careful now. No, <laughs> I had, I had uh, been making costumes for okay. performers, acrobats and circus, so I'd worked a lot with stretch fabrics. And a friend of mine was going on uh, a date and she's, um, she's a hairdresser and she had actually forgotten to bring her change bag and she was going on a date and I said, oh, go on, I'll have a go at making you a pair because, because I had all this stretch micro fabric and I knew the kind of thing that she likes, like, like pin-up girl shape thing. And so I had a little go and it was, it was a very rough version. But I made her uh, a pair of knickers for her to go out in that night for her hot date and she the, yeah the following morning she, I, she came in and I met her and I said how was the date and she said the date was a disaster but I'll have six more of those knickers <laughs> <laughs> so you just I'm going to stop you there for a second I, just to get a visual you said pin up knickers like I know it's exactly 1950s pin up at the side of, you know those murals at the side of airplanes so they're high waisted yeah. so they're quite flattering yeah. as well and comfortable at the same time 
Um, yes. You're obviously very comfortable with the word knickers. I, I, I kind of, the, four, the 14 year old boy in me kind of gets funny still saying it kind of goes, oh, can't say that on the radio. Do you still think it's a bit taboo to be talking about women's underwear? Well, we all wear it. Yeah, I know. Well, maybe you don't wear women's underwear, but we <laughs> all wear None of your business. Never <laughs> <laughs> say never. But, uh, <laughs> the thing is, do you feel uncomfortable saying the word bikini? No, 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 you're right. Absolutely. This, this is just, uh, I'm sure it's to do with my upbringing and the school I went to and the, you know, yeah. and all that kind of stuff, but yeah. But if you use the word, if you say briefs, if you say women's briefs, it doesn't have that quality or nostalgia factor that the word knickers has or that there's a, a, a gentility about the word knickers as opposed to briefs or underwear. It just has a different... It has a feminine tone to it, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. So, yeah. listen, so all of us, you get this phone call or this order, you find out it's for Jean-Paul Gaultier and how long do you have to deliver? And you hand make all of these knickers. So how long have yeah, you got I to ha- make them? I had five days to... not. I had six days to, to make them and get them to Paris for the deadline for the shoot. Now, I'm not going to get technical and, and bore people, but it's just two panels, isn't it? Or three panels? There are five panels. Oh, five. That's right. You have your support. Five, five. Yeah, and then you've got your gusset, which and obviously is. Very good. Very good. <laughs> so so were, you, were you feeling the pressure? Well, I was because I had an outside event on for one of those days and I had to pack everything up for the outside event, do the outside event, which was a full, like, 10-hour day, uh, come back, unpack everything and make all of these knickers. Uh, I, got, I got home after the outside event, did a, uh, not, uh, did a batch cook so that I wouldn't have to do any cooking or anything like that. Just went into the studio at 8 o'clock the following morning and did a 12-and-a-half-hour day of sewing. Brilliant. Uh, which was... Um, you, you make things, you know, it's, that, that's intense. Um, and then I went home, collapsed and went straight in again the next morning. So I was going to say, I, I, I used to do things. I now have people who do things. Do you, yeah. are you, do you do it all yourself? Everything. Wow. Wow. So they're properly everything. handmade. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Every, every piece is hand cut one piece at a time. I kind of love that. As well, that you yeah. know, it's, it's made by the designer, which is, I love that. So you, you have to send yeah. it off. I love this, this sort of local post office story. So you go to the Connacilty post office in UK. Miriam, send these directly to Jean-Paul Gaultier and, <laughs> yes. and don't mess it up. No. Who's Miriam? <laughs> <laughs> but do you know, the amazing thing is because I use the post office in Connacilty all the time to send my orders. Mm. Um, they know me and everything, you know, so it's local, small town. And when I went in to post them, Miriam, who works there, overheard me dealing with her colleague who was going to send them just on post post. <gasps> and, yeah, and she said, no, you've got to send them registered. You've got to send them tracked this way because otherwise they won't. There's no guarantee and we can't track them once they leave. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't follow them and they wouldn't be insured. Gosh, and I'm like, you couldn't well, have your knickers lost in the post. That would not do at I all. I could right? not. No. No, no, it so, would not do. So so did Miriam take charge? She was the captain of the ship. 
she was amazing. She was amazing. She uh, she um, got me to send them, I think it was a DHL courier service that they used through on post. And we had, this was a 48-hour guaranteed service. Now, this is Tuesday 5.30 on, in the post office. I'm loving this image now of you in, in Clonakilty in a little studio, sewing away. Miriam's engaged in the Clonakilty post office and John Paul Gautier is sitting, drumming his fingers, waiting on the knickers to arrive and everybody's panicking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the director of the shoot's going <laughs> into... Screaming. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, uh, so anyway, I, I go into the, uh, uh, um, Miriam said, okay, this, this will get there for Thursday evening. They've got to be on set for the shoot at 10 a.m. on Friday morning wow. in Paris. Now, I have, so we've sent them off and I know that they're going to get there Thursday evening. Thursday evening, I go into the tracking to check to see if they've been signed for. Can't find them anywhere. Oh, did you ring Miriam? Yeah, heart. My heart was absolutely pounding because I don't want to have to refund the money because the product didn't get there. <laughs> I want my product in the Jean-Paul Gaultier advert. You know, all of, you know. This is a, oh, a lifetime they, opportunity. Can I ask a tacky question? They paid full price. Oh yeah. And what is full price? The Paula Paula Hotnikers start at fifty-five euros. Oh, a pair. That's handmade. That's pretty good. Great present. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, really, they, they disappeared. Yeah. You're ringing Miriam in the Clonakilty post office, screaming. Miriam's got, Miriam's got Miriam's calm. Obviously, she's the captain of the ship. Go on. What happened? Yeah. When? Well, I actually I actually went in in person because it's literally two minute walk from my studio, which is you know yeah. fantastic. And she said, "Look, give me your phone number. I will check in for you." And at half past nine the following morning. She rang me to say that they were signed for at 10 o'clock at night on ah, Thursday night. OK, yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. You know, I mean, what service, though? I mean, what a lovely thing for her to do, to go out of her way, because she knew I was being a neurotic, creative person. <laughs> and Wouldn't be like us, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why is everything um, the last minute as well? Like, it's always the way. Uh, 10 o'clock, someone signs uh, for the night before the shoot. It's always like, why is that? Anyway, I, don't, I, I can't yeah, explain yeah. that one yet. But they're there yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. So that's the last you hear. That's in November, right? And they're, yeah. they're, they've arrived in Paris. Whew, the knickers have landed. Everybody's relaxed. Yes. And then yes. You, you, you don't hear another thing, do you? I checked in after Christmas to see what the story was and would... If they could send me any, if they had a photo Updates, or anything, okay, yeah, yeah, or whatever, and she said it will be a long, long time <laughs> the response before we we hear back. And uh, sure enough, I, I thought, well, it's it's coming up for the the kind of year in at the end of October. So I messaged her, and lo and behold, the fragrance had just been launched, and it was, oh my goodness, this is fantastic. Uh, oh my God, look. And if you'd seen me there with the advert, I watched the advert, I don't know how many times, trying to stop to pause <laughs> on my mobile phone to get a screenshot of her in, in the knickers. And of course, then, you know, you get your IT savvy son comes along who plays it and just does it in Second. like a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
you know, anyway, different generation. But it was, it, it, it's six seconds in, you, in the 30-second advert that's on telly. But on the website, on the Jean Pocotier website, there are you, there are other images with um, uh, other people wearing them, but particularly Tess McMillan is is is. Um, so what's the name of the website? Someone's just can I can I get the name of the website for the knickers? Someone's just asked. Right. Okay. Now this is where I hold my head in shame. Oh, good. And say that my website has crashed. <laughs> so uh, uh, just this is hello last Fashion minute. designers, com. I tell you. <laughs> yes. Hello. So, of course, yesterday morning it crashed. They were on it all day yesterday trying to get it back on. And there's some problem to do with the shop within the website. And it's What's your Instagram? What's your Instagram? What's your Instagram? My, my Instagram is created underscore by underscore Catchy. Ali. Created underscore by underscore Ali. Um, yes. Ali, your story's brilliant. And if people Google <laughs> Ali Wheeler, they'll absolutely find it. And there is created underscore by underscore Ali is the Instagram and I'll do a link in my Instagram for you as well because I'd hate to see you waste this opportunity. A lot of people listen oh, to this show. Oh, you've no idea. <laughs> You're too busy sewing. No. You're like Rumpelstiltskin of the knicker world. <laughs> oh, well, I, I, I don't know. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I feel more like Rapunzel up in the blinking tower, actually. <laughs> uh, people but anyway, it's... Go on, it's been really good, also, isn't it? You, pardon? It's, it's, a, it's been a really good experience for you. Unbelievable, unbelievable. You know, I just think about my whole fashion, my time involved in and out, dapping in and out of fashion. And this happens now, and he was there at the top of his game all of that time. It's fantastic. And another weird, really weird thing is years ago, I worked in the West End in London, and I used to sell fragrances. And I, rem- I was involved with the whole launch of the first Gautier perfume. Oh, are you? The- Oh, wow, yeah, that's so, nice. A full so circle. Kind of, yes, it's kind of lovely. And the yeah. fact that you're such a fan and you'd studied fashion and then they reach out to you by finding your product organically. You should be very proud of that. So here's a lovely oh, text. Oh, I am. I'm thrilled. I want you to hear this text, actually, Ali. Uh, this might sound a bit odd, this text, right? But when my mum died, it was up to me as the only girl to sort through some of her more personal belongings. In the drawer with some of the basic freaks, she had a few lovely pairs of underwear, knickers and brackets. I remembered her taking particularly care of these. She had been widowed years before. I loved that these were bought to, for her to feel good about herself. She was all about fashion, a style icon. Every piece in her wardrobe was thought out, even her underwear. So it's very, your underwear really is where your confidence starts, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I think if you feel good underneath, I mean, you can wear whatever you like on the top. You can always keep the essence of who you are or, you know, you're super feminine or super masculine, whatever your thing is. It's next to your skin, it's part of you, even if you've got to wear overalls or a tutu. On the outside, you know, you, it's, it's who you are. You can get on and do whatever you want to do in your day. And if you're comfortable, well, you wish... emit confidence and there's nothing more attractive than confidence. That's it. Ali Wheeler, listen, everybody will be, anybody who sees the Gautier ad for the new perfume, watch out for the girls in gold. You won't miss them. In And they're wearing Ali Wheeler's uh, amazing gold knickers. Lovely to chat to you and the very best of luck with everything, Ali. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so Bye-bye. much. You're amazing. Let's take a break.
Now, my guest is a writer and director who decided to enter the RTE Radio 1's Francis McManus short story competition. Little did he know that his creative pursuit would lead to possible, fingers crossed, Oscar glory when he turned the short story into a film. He joins me now, Lachlan McKenna. You're very welcome to the programme. How are you? Very good. Thank you so much for having me. Good to see you. So, uh, I've had the privilege of being sent a preview of your short film and I I mean, I, I... found you on Instagram last night and said, fair play, I feel good. It's absolutely brilliant. It's called Two for the Road and it, let's just get this out of the way because it's very exciting and just enjoy it anyway. <laughs> it's been long listed for an Oscar nomination. So explain that, what that means to people. Yeah, of course, because it's all a bit, bit strange and surreal. So the way it works is there are 92, I think, Oscar qualifying festivals in the world and thankfully Ireland has three of them and if you win any of those then you are uh, long listed for an Oscar. So there's also, like there's a backdoor system where people can go and I think, you know, pay to have their film screened in LA. Actually, that's a really good... So if there's three film festivals, if you enter in the film festival here, there's three that automatically, if you win yeah, that Cork, film festival... Cork, Galway and Foil. So if you win any of those as a short filmmaker, then your film is long-listed. Is long-listed yeah. okay. So, we so were, which one did you win? Galway. So we were fortunate. The premiere um, was in Galway and we won that. And then from there... Um, yeah, you're, you're automatically long-listed. So the system then works that all the Academy voters are able to vote from today till Monday. And we find out on Thursday if we're shortlisted. So it goes down to 15. Oh my God. So there's 100. I know. Really <laughs> the, timing is, the timing is incredible. So yeah, we there's 187 films, I think, altogether. And it's shortlisted down to 15 on thir- or, yeah, next Thursday. And then from there, there's a whole other process where they make the nominees. I'm really superstitious. And I, I, I am very superstitious. And I, don't want, I don't want to jinx anything. But I really have a good feeling about this. It's, it's a really, really, really good movie. I, I really loved it. Um, Thank you. Uh, yeah, so it's important. You have it up on YouTube. You're ho- so there's a, you have a big competition. You want to get these people to see it, right? Well, this is the thing. Yeah, I think the most important thing is trying to get like Academy voters eyes on it. You know, I mean, it's so hard to say. It's all just such like conjecture and pie in the sky in one sense because I, I would like to think that the film is good enough. That it feels like a dark science. Yeah, <laughs> like based on, based on the quality of the film, you would kind of hope that it might get through. But, you know, um, there's so much more politics behind it than that. And really, I suppose our, our biggest hope and aim is that people watch it, connect with it and... You know, from there, that's kind of all we can do, really, you know. Before we dive into the story, because I think that's your winning form. Obviously, it's beautifully made as well, but um, and the brilliant performances. But the, the story at the centre of it, I think a lot of people will relate to it. But uh, it was originally called Guinness and Coke. And you, it was a short, you entered it in the Frank, Francis McManus short story competition. So what's what explain that yeah it's funny it's like it, it feels quite cyclical to be back in here again you know because <laughs> yeah because I, I've I've you know when I first stuck in for the yeah so I was supposed to start from the beginning um, it was the pandemic you know I'd always been good at writing but never ever really gave myself the space to write um, and I was back home in Cork with my family and you know I was just able to to just start time. Jot- yeah I had time to just start jotting down kind of things and memories and this story kind of just came out and then I think I saw an ad for the Francis McManus short story competition and I was like oh that's perfect and it kind of gave me a goal as well 2,000 words and I was like okay I need to write the story you know truncate one of these stories and put it into 2,000 words and um, yeah that just came out it was a story I used to kind of um, tell friends in the pub and stuff and I suppose the, the biggest thing about that was that I had the space to redraft you know it's one thing to write but to also be able to redraft and redraft and redraft stuck it in thought nothing of it and then got a call from RT one day and I was like, what on earth are RT ringing me about? <laughs> totally forgotten that I even stuck I it in. I say that to myself every day. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, they were like, look, it's been nominated and um, Aina Hardwick went on and did this, this gorgeous reading of it and I suppose that and then um, someone from the Department of Education got in touch and asked could they put on the junior cert curriculum as a comprehension oh wow okay yeah which was, which was wild so I, that was kind of the building blocks I guess for us to get the funding from, from Screen Ireland you know so uh, yeah it, it was, it's, it's a funny place for us to start but it kind of 
Yeah, it's made sense. It's been how, nice kind of like, how, did, how did that feel? Like as as you're going, as it's, it's just it's very organic as well. What's happening here, right? Yeah, and I think you know it's it's one thing to write the story, but when I first heard the reading of it, when I heard it on the radio on on RT radio, um, I just moved to London. I think a couple of days beforehand, I was sitting in this new apartment on my own. And I was just bawling. I was like, it was oh, so amazing. surreal because <laughs> I was hearing someone playing me, you know, and not just someone, but Ain. It was such a lovely reading of it. And I was like, oh my god, this is so strange to hear words that I'd written from my own recollection, you know. So um, then you decide to turn that winning story which has won an, an award or, or won, won a competition into a short film how do you how, how do you jump into that I suppose you know like I was a filmmaker anyway so it kind of made sense it wasn't something that I had I had um, intended on doing but then you know funding um, so the Focus Shorts funding was coming up and I just thought it made sense so Screen Ireland Focus yeah so Screen Ireland's kind of primary um, premier sort of uh, short film fund is called Focus Shorts um, it's a 60 grand fund and it just made sense you know I kind of felt like the right uh, time in my career and whatnot. so developed into into a script and it's funny because I think if I'd done it any earlier or tried to do it earlier I probably wouldn't have really? you know had the now so the skill to do it yeah I don't think so um, or the maturity maybe as well to approach it properly okay so yeah the timing just worked out well in that sense as well you know just kind of coming out of the pandemic and you know felt sort of fresh and when did you shoot it sorry we shot in March of okay. this year oh really yeah shot That's in March and Finish it in June. Was in Galway in July. Okay, and now we're here. <laughs> Congratulations! It's Thank brilliant. You. It really is. Um, so you you studied theatre and film? Did you? I did. Uh, no, I did drama and theatre studies in UCC with English. Okay. So the film thing kind of I just sort of fell in arseways into the film industry. Really, okay. just kind of trying to be do anything, get on set, and really, yeah, just sort of like you know production assistant or assistant directing, casting. Used to work in Ali Coffees for a bit. Um, just anything to kind of make a few bob, and just loved loved sort of the industry in general. Um, so while this baby has come to life now and is on the long list and like just bathe in all of this, right? Do you feel pressure now for your difficult second album? Are you working on something else? Not really, I don't think. Because, Good. you know, I think, you know, I always use the same example, but, you know, you often read director bios and they're like, oh, you know, Johnny started off filmmaking by shooting skate videos on his dad's Bolex and stuff, you know? <laughs> and it's like, I, I didn't have that at all. So, you know, I, I knew nothing. Even the first couple of years I was directing, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know which side of the lens was up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sure a lot of my, like, directors of photography and stuff have been nodding there. <laughs> Listen to that. But I, I honestly didn't have a clue. And I think that... um you know, just kind of finding finding my feet and one step in front of the other. And there's no kind of, there's never been a big expectation to do, you know, I've never had like, I don't know, ideas of grandeur or, or right. dreams of the Oscars or any of this sort of stuff. So it's it's made it kind of a bit easier in that sense. So the film, let's talk about it. Um, uh, it's based on your childhood memories. Yeah. Safe to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. I, like the word I keep using is a memoir, you know. It's, yeah. it's funny because I think you know, with childhood, it's, it's you can like, I, I suppose all the memories are true to, to me as I remember them, you know, but obviously some things are taken from particular weekends and some things are taken from photographs and some things are taken from conversations with family, you know, and it's all kind of pulled together to create. So I'm going to let you describe it to viewers what they can expect. Yeah, it's eight, I, 18 minutes long. I kind of loathe this part because it's... Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm because, feeling, yeah. I'm feeling the gap. No, because I think, you know, the funny thing about the film, you know, you've seen it. You're so sweet. Come on, <laughs> this is your moment. Go you've for seen, glory. You've seen it, but I suppose the film on the surface doesn't sound like it's about much because it's about a father and son who spend the weekend together um, and they they go on an adventure to an island and they end up at a local pub and that's kind of the crux of it um, I think what what it's really about though is about the the malleability of children and about the um, just about the, the the give and get of relationships when, between father and son and um, that sort of um, tug of war that you have as a parent and a child and the love that you have for each other and um, that parents do make mistakes and um, that you know sometimes just because your parent loves you that maybe isn't you know, the best outcome, you know, that, that that's much more complex than that and that, 
um, yeah, children are very susceptible to um, uh, to accept the love of their parents and kind of go along with whatever the they parent do. kind of says is right, you know. So it's basically the the boy, young guy, young boy, Oscar, uh, who's uh, loosely based on your childhood, is about nine, ten. Yeah, I mean, it's more than loose, yeah, <laughs> to yeah, be fair. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, like the, the devil's in the detail. We just try and make it as accurate as possible. Okay. Um, and he's, yeah, so it's 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 based off a very specific weekend, you know, and um, yeah, he's 10. Uh, Ewan Morris, who plays me, is Who's amazing. incredible. He's unbelievable. Superstar. <laughs> he, is, he is absolutely amazing. Um, but he's 13, so, you know, we cast him a little bit older. He was perfect in every sense in this. I wanted someone who's a little bit older, a little bit more mature, looked younger. Yeah. Um, had a neutral accent was really important to me because I really didn't want anyone to be able to um, say where he's from yeah, yeah well yeah. no I hate that I hate watching a film and be like oh they're mayo because there's a thick mayo accent there or whatever so you know very important to me that it all feels generic like so it could be anywhere in Ireland and they could be from anywhere in Ireland and um, yeah he's he's just insane he's he's like I miss him actually I love being on set with him he's such he'd never been an actor before on screen never done an audition in person before he has a a, a quality of a very unique quality on, on screen as well and then of course Steve Wall plays your dad, yeah, plays that. yeah, yeah. yeah. And an amazing guy, loves. and you know what, they work so well as a team as well. And Steve was so sweet, and you know, really nurtured him. And I think that was important too. We came up to Dublin and did like a rehearsal day, um, where we had, you know, we played pool and just basically explained how a film set worked because he had no idea. <laughs> His mum came up as well, Marie, and you know, they're just such lovely people, and we we had such a nice time just kind of working it all through together and working through, I suppose the. Um, I suppose a bit like intimacy coordination too, you know, working through the physical actions too, because obviously with father and son, you know, there has to be a closeness and making sure they were comfortable. Like there's a scene where Steve carries you in and making sure that was all okay and, and whatnot. And um, yeah, they just, they just clicked. And so I suppose a bit we're leaving out here is uh, uh, the parents are separated. Mm-hmm. And so your character. Sorry, yeah, jumping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> jumping so, we're gonna, so basically as a child, you would spend weekends with your dad and you would go on adventures. Yeah, so I, I had a very kind of um, stable and happy um, weekday life with my mum um, and, you know, reading Harry Potter and The Hobbit and going to school and friends and sports and all that. And uh, my dad would come and collect me on the weekends and, you know, he would just pull out a map and be like, where do you want to go? And we'd just put the finger on the map and just drive to somewhere random in Ireland and could be Leitrim, could be West Cork, could be Dublin, could be anywhere, you know. And um, so they were like mini adventures. Oh, big time! Oh, very much so. Like we, I was in every county in Ireland before I was ten. <laughs> really? Yeah. And um, That's you know, the, the the weekends were very active as well. There's a lot of like, you know, uh, he'd get a metal metal detector, and we'd go looking for like ancient coins, or like we'd go breaking rocks looking for fossils, or searching for spider crabs, or like, um, you know. We drive, uh, if there was ever a thunderstorm, we drive towards it, you know, this sort of stuff. It was very like, um, yeah, it was it was eccentric, but, you know, very, very exciting as a kid. It was amazing, like yeah. a lot of fun. And, you know, within that, there was a lot of, um, you know, sometimes we drive through the night and sometimes we'd camp and sometimes we'd stay in hostels and sometimes hotels and sometimes B&Bs. And it just depended on where we ended up and how far we traveled. And um, that was all the kind of fun of it, too. But, uh, yeah, quite, quite um, a big kind of dichotomy, I guess, between the two. Uh, and in the, there's a scene where the two characters sleep in the car. Did that ever happen? That happened, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, as I said, if you were driving through the night and stuff and, you know, you depend where you'd end up or where you were going. And, um, the, you know, there was a funny instant I remember once before where we were driving late at night. And I remember my dad woke me up and he was just like, um, Lucky, Lucky, get up, get up. Something to show you. And I was like groggy and didn't know where we were or what we were. And I remember stepping out of the car with one of his jackets on me and I was freezing and... He, he had a head torch in his head and a, and a torch in his hand. And we're just kind of walking through this field and we, we stooped underneath this like fence and I was like, what is going on? It was only like eight or something at the time. And then we came up to this lake and there was, um, 
there, uh, there was like all this like ebbing kind of um, uh, flu- fluorescent and stuff. And I turned to him and I was like, what is it? And he was like, aliens. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no he sounds way. amazing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like making a lot of fun adventure. Now, I don't know, maybe he, he believed that too. <laughs> but you know, there was a lot of lot of fun adventure in that. And it wasn't yeah. obviously till years later, I was like, oh, it was just like bioluminescence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whatever, you know, yeah, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of the joy of it, I think. Which is also can be frightening as well. For sure. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, I, and I, I, I don't want to dive into it, I don't want to skim over it. That, like we're, we're describing a sort of a, a brilliant guy you know who's who's doing the best he can, and the marriage is is broken up, and he he collects his he spends every weekend with his son. But there's elements of danger involved as well, and I think that's really what I relate to as well. And I understand that lots of people will as well. There's elements that you drive home very gently, that you know sometimes you've got to be careful with young brains. You know, yeah, for sure. And I think you know there's no point skimming over the fact that it's you know we often went to the pub, you know, and I think. What I've noticed with people who've really connected with the film is that, you know, pub culture in Ireland um, is, is rife and it always has been. And it especially was in the 90s. There was a lot of, you know, um, kids that were just dropped off the pub or left in the pub. And there's only so much pool you can play and so much, you know, darts you can throw at Mr. Tato and so <laughs> rings many, you can throw and so many so much coke you can, you can eat. drink and yeah, stuff, you know, yeah. like, Jesus, I actually, I kind of feel like I'm maybe a music fanatic because of the amount of time I spent in the jukebox, <laughs> you know. But, um, yeah, like, I mean, of course, that they're, they're, you know, alcohol and caring for kids don't go together. And, um, you know, I I had some ropey moments. The film kind of highlights one of those. Um, and yeah, they're scary. But I think that the, the thing, the sort of overarching thing for me in terms of the filmmaking and also personally is that um, I never felt frightened. Like, sorry, that's not true. Of course, in moments like that, I did feel frightened. But generally, I always felt safe with him because he was my dad, you know. So in the end of the day, you're with dad. You captured that. Absolutely brilliantly. Uh, and that was, yeah, thank you so much because that's so important because like, I never wanted to vilify him. It's yeah. like he's got his own demons and he's got his own troubles but he's not a bad person in the Not at the all. Day, not you know, at all. and it's important that he's trying to, he's trying to be there and trying to, trying to do his best and I think it's only with an adult gaze when you look back on it, you know. There's a scene where Oscar is asleep in the pub and yeah. he's drinking at the bar and I remember that. Mm. I remember falling asleep in a pub, you know. Yeah. And I'm not making light of it because no, now, now we're talking about it, we're like, yeah. actually, that's probably not great. No, no, no. And, you know, I've spoken to so many people who've had the same experience. That's yeah. the crazy thing about it. Like, it's such a, I mean, honestly, a life highlight really was was when we screened in Galway. We were the 10th film of 10 um, in the programme. And I thought I was chill. I was like, it's all good. I've seen it so many times. Gee, and, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's a hundred times this stage. And um, there was maybe 70 people there, I think, between friends and family and whatnot. And, you know, my granny and my siblings and all that sort of oh, stuff. Everyone was there. And I was like, this would be grand. And the first frame came on and I was like, get it off the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like hyperventilating and crying. And I was like, I couldn't, wow. couldn't cope. But, uh, you know, and then the lights came up, obviously, because it was the last film. And everyone turned around to be like, congratulations. And I was like, <gasps> but anyway, I left the cinema and the amount of people that came up to me and they were in tears as well. And they were just like, that's my childhood. Like, you've you've, yeah. you've betrayed my childhood. And, you know, just really affected by people I didn't know. And I suppose that was the... That was, I was like, oh my God, like you, it's so rare as a filmmaker that you get to experience that. It's like theatre in one sense, I suppose, to actually get the reaction like firsthand from people, um, you know, was, was, was magic. You know, I was like, oh my God, I have to keep doing this as a job. <laughs> if yeah. I can do that, you know, yeah. it, was, it was amazing. So telling that story is, is challenging, was challenging. Uh, and the, the cheesy word cathartic, is it? Set? No, what? no, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think cathartic is, 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 is everything. Yeah, it was very, very cathartic. Did it, did it bring up too much at any point like are you, I mean obviously you're delighted you've done it now but was it hard? Um, mixed I'd say yeah it's funny like I think um, with all things like this you kind of wear two hats I suppose you know yeah, like during the, during the filmmaking process there was a bit of like you know uh, kind of forgetting it was about me at all you know very much just focused on the filmmaking um, I remember at one stage my production designer Kira Donovan um, dressed the car 
um, that, that we travel in. And she was like, oh, would you just um, sit into the car and have a look at it? And I sat into the car and I was like, oh, my God. I was like being like literally stepping into a portal. I was just like instantly taken back. Yeah. And then suddenly the hat falls off and you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it was hard. I mean, the other thing as well is, you know, um, you know the term swallowing the frog. Swallowing the frog. No, to, I read that, but I don't yeah, know. Is, is to do the, the first, the hardest task first. Okay. So that should have been probably the casting, but I left the casting for ages because I was just like, couldn't. Because casting yourself Couldn't wrap my head around no, casting I, myself I and my dad and stuff, you know. Um, but we. Was that hard? Yeah. It yeah. was hard. Yeah. I mean, it, it, once we did it, it wasn't, of course. It's one of those things if we just did it. And, you know, I never really cared about the, like the likeness or, you know, the looks or anything. You know, there was an amazing ginger kid we, we looked at at one stage and I thought he was brilliant. And if he'd been cast and we would have got a redhead dad, you know, and that would yeah, have been fine. Yeah. Um, just so happens you and does look a bit like me. Yeah, <laughs> look, yeah. Makes me look like a narcissist. Um, <laughs> but um, no, I mean, like, yeah, in terms of just getting, get the most important thing was getting you in and getting the right young actor and then getting the father off that, you know. And your mum uh, plays a tiny role at the end of this in a very stable way. Because yeah. you end up, you, come, you know, we see you in your bedroom, which is gorgeous and safe. And she goes, how was, how was the weekend? And you kind of, you don't, you don't tell her, you don't lie. But you, you yeah. say great, but you can see, you know, she, she, she didn't know what was going on. And that's very true to life, I think, because, you know, my father did swear me to secrecy. It was a lot of just like, don't tell your mother and like, oh, we're such fun, don't we? And, um, you know, I think with that, it's, it's, it, 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 that was a bit challenging, I guess, because, I, you know, if I'd had more time, I probably would have focused more on, on the good. And um, I, I mean, from a storytelling perspective, you know, and focus more on the positives of being at home and mom. And I think that would have made it even sadder, but it's a short film at the end of the day. So, you know, I think to distract from them and to move it into the home world and mum would have, would have, you know, it's just a whole other story, you know. Now it's it's a story and it's it's a it's effectively it's a, it's a short film, it's a movie. But like you, you've described people's reactions to it, when people, I mean, I I really did love it. it. It really moved me, and I really would love people to see it. And it is up on it Thank is you, up on yeah. YouTube now. So we hope lots of Academy, Academy <laughs> yeah. members will see it. Emma Stone's still tuned in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, make sure you Google uh, Two for the Road. But tell me this: um, what would you like people to take away from it? And that's a big, broad social question. No, of I know. course, yeah. I think you know. We've kind of touched on it already, but I think that what's been really interesting about it is the variance between people's reaction where people have been like quite angry, I suppose, mm. um, about the fact that Oscar's in this situation. And then what I've also, you know, maybe the more fascinating side of that is chatting to older parents who maybe have fractured relationships with their kids and the sort of guilt that they feel or the, you know, the sadness and sorrow, you know, uh, there's so many kind of relationships um, between fathers and sons and daughters yeah. and mothers or daughters and fathers and whatnot where, where you know, we, all don't, we don't live in a nuclear world, nuclear families. And I think that's why people are connecting with, with it so much. And I think yeah. that really, you know... It's ultimately the, the, a story about forgiveness, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's I, gorgeous. And I think that's why it's maybe frustrating for people in some senses because they're like, don't forgive him. You know what I mean? It's yeah, just like, yeah, he's, yeah. you know, um, and that's interesting because like I haven't heard that yet, you know, so that's a really nice takeaway. Uh, Brendan, a, a text comes in now. I'm sorry I missed that beautiful man's name. He's so humble, such a great quality <laughs> in a person, very special. He'll do very well. Thank you, Anne. His name is Lachlan McKenna and the short That's film, sweet. which is long listed and we'll be watching with, we wa no pressure, but we'll, we'll just be observing, <laughs> is called Two for the Road and you can sneak over to YouTube and have a little look at it if you want. The very best of luck. We'll be watching with uh, loads of fingers crossed and um, pleasure to meet you. Thank, Thank you so you much. So much. Thanks so much, Brendan. Cheers. Let's, let's take a break. Whether you're going all out traditional this Christmas or just marking the season in your own little family ways, you might pause and wonder where the customs you follow came from. Maybe they're particular to your corner of the country or passed down through the family tree 
Anyway, Dr. Marion McGarry is a lecturer at the Atlantic Technological University, Galway, and as author of Irish Customs and Rituals, she is the perfect person to ask about the Irish traditions we turn to in these dark winter months. And some of these traditions I read here actually struck a chord with me. So good morning, Dr. McGarry. Good morning, Brendan. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Thank I hope you and your listeners are well also. Thank you so much. Listen, and we're just before we dive straight into the list, why do these traditions matter? What do they bring to our daily lives? Well, traditions and rituals are good to fall back on when we have big events in our lives like births, marriages and deaths. And Christmas is one of those annual events where, you know, we have a set of traditions to enact and lots of families have their own unique traditions. But I'm here to talk to you today about, you know, Irish rituals and old Irish customs of Christmas. Now, some of the customs you're going to talk about are kind of new to me and some of them I've seen modern versions of them. But how much does your locality matter in terms of the traditions you adhere to? Well, in Ireland, just like, you know, Irish accents, there's great regional variations in customs and rituals. And what might be done in one area might not necessarily be done in another area. So, for example, I'm of Cork Leitrim parentage. So um, things that would have been done in Leitrim might not have been done in Cork. A great example of that would be Nolignaman, Women's Christmas on 6th of January. And that would have been a big tradition in the southwestern part of the island. But people in Leitrim may not have heard of that. And similarly, things like Wren boys and mummers might be regional specific. Yeah, so let's get started with this one though here. We were talking this week a lot about shops and small businesses at the heart of the community. That means so much to people who live there. And the tradition of the Christmas box, when I read into your description of it, I remember my mum would would, uh, do a Christmas box in her hairdressing salon yeah, and I'm I'm surprised. I'm always surprised when people still keep this tradition going. I was in my hairdressers recently and got a bottle of shampoo. Yeah. <laughs> you know that, but it's lovely. Or in my butcher's, he gives a calendar. So yeah, that's just where small businesses give a little something back to their customers for their loyalty throughout the year. And that could be just your local pub giving you a little drink at Christmas. And it's it doesn't have anything to do with a box, but it's called the Christmas box. So yeah, it's a nice little one. It's nice to get something back as a loyal customer. And it was very much part of my mum's business as well and we know small businesses are under immense pressure at the moment and, and but I'd love to hear from people if they're listening if they still keep the tradition of the Christmas box up with their small business so text 51551 if you're listening now we talked last week also about the 8th of December that massive shopping day that my father would have us all locked down and hidden from the streets of Dublin does that come <laughs> from on, on Marga Moore the big market is that something to do with that because that's, that's outside the big towns that's where they had these markets is that right I hadn't heard of this one yeah it is isn't it isn't so 8th of December it's a big shopping day where the <clears throat> so-called Pulshies go and descend on Dublin I'm one myself so I can say that but no it's slightly different Brendan because on Marga Moor is the big Christmas market that actually traditionally would take place around the country on the Saturday before Christmas So what you would have there was, and this is in rural Ireland as well, so where you have women of the house who they're traditionally in charge of poultry and dairy produce, they would take these to the market, fatten up their goose and they'd bring it to the market and they'd have a load of eggs, maybe some butter churned and they would use the earnings from the big market. These were known as pin money and they would, inverted commas, get in the Christmas, okay? And in order to get in the Christmas, you know, this is the days before big grocery shops and supermarkets were around. So you'd go to your local grocer, probably their spirit grocer. You'd have a shopping list. You'd have on it tea, dried fruits, spice, sugar, candles, sweets. 
household goods, clothes, a bottle of whiskey, all this sort of stuff would be lumped into the box and then you're, you'd take that home, which is, that was your Christmas shopping essentially in the local shops. So it's all local, it's all good stuff, you know? So pin money was something my grandmother would have spoken about as well and they would fatten up the hens and bring them to the market. Are there still uh, on, on Marga Moors happening around Ireland now? I suppose they've evolved into Christmas markets, haven't yeah, they? I yeah. suppose you don't have many people producing their own produce. I think there might be something yeah, in this, isn't there? It could be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah, revive on Marga Moore and, and start getting people doing home industries again. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. It's, it's important to point out, Brendan, as well, just what I'm talking about here, their customs typical from Ireland, say, from the end of the 19th century into living memory. So what you're saying there, you're kind of like me, you remember some of these. Yeah. Um, but some of them have died out. Uh, some of them have completely died out altogether. Has so, the, the ritual of gift giving between urban and rural relatives, has that died out? Yeah, I doubt very much many people in Dublin would have cousins sending them up bags of potatoes. <laughs> Unless the cousin... I don't is know, I live in Stony Organic hipsters are all at it. Craft <laughs> 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 beer or something like that, perhaps. But no, it it depends. I can't say for sure, but it probably has with big supermarkets. A lot of these things have died out, all right. It surprises me to hear that they've died out. Is there an assumption these traditions are still alive? There is. There's a big assumption that a lot of our traditions are alive, actually, Brendan. And we just assume that, uh, you know, we Irish do these things and we, we still keep them going. But do we really? That's a big question. For example, a great example would be, do people still find fairy forts superstitious and do they still leave them untouched? There's a major assumption there, but there's also a major question mark. Do people still not touch things or are people still superstitious? And again, without... You know, without hard facts, it's hard to know, but we must be careful what we assume. And I, I'm thinking a lot of these traditions are, are very much on the way out. The one tradition that I like, again, like my mum's Christmas box, the American letter, but that had evolved for us in that we would all huddle around the phone and my grandmother's and ring my cousins in Australia, ring my aunt. And she'd get it once a year, oh, wow. maybe twice a year. But the original well, Brent, form you're very posh. posh. <laughs> he had a phone. <laughs> we did, actually. Yeah, we were very posh. So tell me this. Uh, when uh, The American letter was literally people would send home a parcel of exotic goods. Is that parcel. fair to say, yeah? Yeah, so the American letter, it's, it's funny because it's not really a letter. It's just a communication and usually a parcel with loads of good American stuff in it that you wouldn't get in Ireland. So yeah, that was really anticipated. And maybe if it wasn't a, a box, it was it was an envelope with money in it. The lines of communication were always open via the post with emigrants. Yeah. Um, but particularly at Christmas, that letter, that, that communication was keenly anticipated. I yeah. have a text here. When your guest talks about, inverted commas, getting in Christmas, I wonder, is it like my mum doing the Christmas press or the Christmas cupboard after the big shop? Do you remember, she adds into it through November, December and God help you if you go near that and try and take anything out of it. <laughs> the big biscuit tin would yeah, go in, yeah, the yeah. six pack of lemonade, all that. Is it, that's kind of the same thing, the isn't lemonade. it? The red lemonade. The good biscuits, yeah, yeah. The good biscuits. Yeah, it's very similar. Those mothers were very well organised. Like, yeah, yeah, so they're they're getting it in gradually. Absolutely. Another one my mum always did every year. That we, I, I remember at Christmas there'd be a big Santa Teddy sitting up on the countertop at the reception as you went into the hairdressing salon for a raffle. So there was a Christmas raffle every year, but they do raffles outside pubs or local shops. That's a tradition, yeah? 
Oh yeah, absolutely, 100% Brendan. And that's still very much on the go today. So there was a Christmas raffle, usually for mutton in most areas. <laughs> when turkey then became fashionable, turkey wasn't always fashionable, it was goose. And my grandparents would have had goose, not yeah, turkey. I remember so that, when turkey, that, yeah. And when turkey became fashionable, then you had uh, raffles for turkey. And then in the 10 days or so leading up to Christmas, you yeah. would have protracted kind of games of cards were played where most people would club together to form a join at a selected house. Oh, really? And each of them, yeah, each of them would pay a small sum to keep them in a small quantity of alcohol just to keep them going while they were playing cards. And then you might also have a bit of, it's a social interaction, you'd have storytelling and chat. And yeah, there was a, there was a couple of other things as well in the lead up to Christmas that involved raffles and, and cards and but ultimately, yeah, Irish people used to add into cards. And that, that, but that's ultimately about bringing people together, isn't it? And having a reason to be in a room together, basically to come together. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So how did music feature in our older customs? Yeah, in some urban areas, again, Brendan, this one's regional specific, right? In some urban areas, you had a custom known as, it was calling the weights, and it involved groups of young men going from street to street, and they would wish people goodwill, and they would say good morning and good evening, and they would have musical instruments, um, drums, accordions, and it was just a lovely atmospheric processional thing to do. They'd collect money, and I think in Castle Bar, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Castle Bar was known for this in County Mayo. You can imagine how much of an atmosphere that created. It would have been quite nice. I'm sure our listeners will tell us, text 51551, if you relate to any of these traditions and even if you have a modern version of it. And this is one I really relate to. So we would always joke in our house that the smell of paint reminds us of Christmas because my mother would do a huge clean up, like never mind January declutter or spring clean. The house would be kind of reborn for Christmas. It's a big tradition in Ireland, Brendan. Anytime there's a big event, of course, like a, a station or a wedding or Easter, there is a big spring clean and Christmas was no exception. It, 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 there was a deep clean done in the house at a Christmas deep clean. time. So, you'd, yeah, you'd come home from school and you'd clean. smell the bleach and you'd be dreading it. All yeah. the drawers would be upside down in the kitchen. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Things were pulled out, chairs, yeah. crockery, pots chimneys yeah. Uh, yeah so um and also there was a lot as you mentioned brendan there's a lot of paint uh, so people took an opportunity to paint whitewash uh, was used in the past as well and outbuildings and the exterior of the house might get a coat so yeah it was really taken seriously and it was it was intense yeah cupboards everything was turned out i remember one christmas my mother holding the stool a high stool well, I cleaned the lights on the ceiling with a J-cloth and a, and a spray. I was like, really? But Santa's going to look up to see if the lights are clean? Anyway. Um, he, he does, apparently. He does, apparently. So if there's any kids listening, it wouldn't be a bad idea to just get out the mop and help your parents, you know? Yeah, that's it. Well done. <laughs> Christmas Eve, my partner's Polish and he actually flies over for Christmas Eve. It's a much bigger celebration for them. They have like a big 12-course dinner. But Christmas Eve was a big celebration in Ireland traditionally, wasn't it? It was a time for reflection and remembrance of loved ones lost. Is that right? Christmas Eve, just in general in Ireland, is just one of those things we really get right. And there's a lot of lot of nice little uh, things, rituals and customs connected with Christmas Eve. And it's just this period when all the mad, hectic activity, the cleaning, all of that is done. And you can kind of breathe out and breathe a sigh of relief. It's it's done. And what basically um, Christmas Eve in Ireland, it's the eve of something. And traditionally in the Irish calendar, going back to more ancient times, the eve or the sunset is when you start to celebrate 
break the next day. So I remember, even though it being Advent, strictly speaking, right? Yeah. I remember that my mom, about half past nine after the candles were lit in the house, she'd sit down and she'd have a hot whiskey and uh, she, she'd relax and the candles would be on in the window. And it was just that, look, the peace would descend. And I think traditionally people would at sundown on Christmas Eve, that's when it started. Christmas started then. And even though it was still strictly speaking Advent and they were still fasting, they allowed themselves to have a slice of cake or a sherry or whatever. The, the lovely thing about Christmas Eve in Ireland is as well that tradition of lighting a candle and putting it in the window because symbolically you're guiding the holy family on their journey to Bethlehem. Because remember, it's the birth, it's Jesus's so, birthday. It's a big Christian celebration. So that's what so the candle in, in the Ireland, window was to guide the holy family to Bethlehem. I thought it was it meant that strangers were welcome in your house. No. To guide the Holy Family. Uh, yeah, well, you've only be careful now who you're inviting into your house. Well, I'd say yeah, so. I mean, yeah. I, I was never comfortable with it. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> be blowing the candle out after your mama put it in the window. I don't know about that now. That's another great example of regional specific. You know, that could be, you know, that's another regional variation. Maybe that was done in your area, you know. You, you were welcome strangers. But this was a spectacle, Brendan. And I remember my mom used to stand outside the house and yeah. she'd take it all in. She'd look at the spectacle in the dark. And I used to be thinking when I was a kid, what is she doing? She's so vain looking at her house. But that was the point. That was the point of it. And I only realized after she passed that this was the tradition. So people around Ireland would actually come out of their homes, right? And on their way to midnight mass or whatever, and they would take in the spectacle of the flickering candles nice. on Christmas Eve at their neighbors' houses. It's just so wonderful. I mean, that beats any Christmas lights to me that people have gone to this effort. It's a symbolic ritual. And it's there to be admired and for people to contemplate. And I mean, that's just so wonderful. The other thing that you just mentioned to me there was the remembrance of loved ones. And, um, you know, at Christmas, everyone is kind of corralled into that festive tunnel. And it can be difficult on people who are grieving, for example, or, or recently um, bereaved. And even if you're not reasonably bereaved, it's, it can be tough to remember deceased uh, people that passed on, mm. you know, yourself um, yeah. it, during the, the, or in the past. Yeah, Christmas, yeah, for sure. Christmas conjures up all of those memories of, of people um, deceased. So, you know, you have this little ritual on Christmas Eve and it's a similar ritual to that done um, at Halloween, actually, where you would leave your door unlocked at bedtime mm -hmm. and arrange the seat arrange the chairs around your fire stoke up the fire arrange the chairs leave a bit of food out and that was to welcome your dead ancestors back into the house for Christmas Eve isn't that sweet and um, sweet's Christmas not a word Day, I'd use but yeah go on <laughs> it's terrifying <laughs> <laughs> it depends it depends on what way you look at it but there yeah. is a certain yeah, yeah there's two ways of looking at it. Your way is a bit extreme. My way is, uh, you know, it's nice piece. It's very to do. poignant. But, yeah, um, it is. It is, and it's it can be of comfort to people. And also then on the on Christmas Day, leaving greenery on the family grave is another tradition as well. And it's just to bring those who, who we've lost back into the celebrations. Yeah, now that wouldn't have been a tradition in our family to visit graves, but certainly we live very near a cemetery up in my mom does. Uh, in South Dublin and it's packed on Christmas morning family's going to visit so that's a very old tradition isn't it for Christmas uh, it is yeah it is and it's you know what I think that I think personally this goes way way back you're remembering you're bringing the dead ancestors back in I mean that's something that's really quite pre-Christian and you're acknowledging them and you're welcome, welcoming them back to your celebrations nice. and I think that that is and yeah it is nice yeah what traditions would you love to see people embrace 
Well, certainly the Christmas Eve traditions there where you have that moment of quiet contemplation and maybe you just switch off all the devices and go out and look at the candles and remember remember people who have passed. Um, and certainly in terms of decorations, we could all do with some more natural materials. Yeah, look at each individual family. I was talking about regional variations there, but each individual family has their own traditions. Yeah, of course, and yeah. that's important as well. But yeah, I think just to maybe that meditative aspect, you know, rather than rush, rush, rush and having to do loads of stuff and buy lots of stuff to just sit and think and enjoy the moment. And are these among some of the customs and traditions you'll keep keeping going yourself or have you added anything new? Actually, I've, you know what, when I was growing up, I'd listen to my mam and I'd sort of think, oh, why is, you know, why is she doing that? I mean, can't we move on from this? And But now I realise that it's so important to keep these things going and to maybe revive stuff that mm. you mightn't necessarily have about. And I think, you know, in the rush to modernise in Ireland in the last century, we kind of lost an awful lot of that. Yeah. And I think it's no harm bringing it back because if we don't, it's going to be lost forever really it's easier to continue something than it is to revive something Ooh, wise words very wise words oh. <laughs> uh, with the tradition in my family is and this might shock some people who don't do this and the people who do it would kind of nod I can hear now is sausage meat in the stuffing we do that yeah. I'm, getting one nod from, I'm getting one nod from the box here would you do that would you sausage meat in the stuffing or is that modern fad oh my god I'm nodding I'm nodding profusely here Brendan that's something I produced recently the old Jamie Oliver recipe, that's extraordinary. That's a game changer. <laughs> Thank you so much. Listen, I can see lots of lovely texts coming in on the traditions you've kept on. But Dr. Marion McGarry, that was really insightful and lovely words of wisdom. Happy, happy Christmas. Thank you so much for taking the call. Oh, thank you, Brendan. And to you and all your listeners the same. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. And you know, I'd love to hear what traditions you have brought to the country. Maybe you grew up outside of Ireland. How do you mark this time? Text 51551. 